So before Paul comes to speak to us, if you've got a Bible, pick it up and we're going to uh, look at Luke 24. This is our final series in uh, Luke's Gospel and I'm going to start at verse 36. Jesus appears to the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the, for, for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Over to you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, as we come to the end of our series in Luke's Gospel, we pray that you would fill us with joy and with trust in you, with our Easter hope. Amen. Well, I wonder if you read the critique of the church during this lockdown. It was in a national newspaper. Uh, the writer criticised the Church of England's pronouncement. I think a bit unfairly. He said what we all needed more than anything at a time like this was hope. What we got from the C of E was health and safety. A bit unfair, because we need both physical health and spiritual hope. And the Christian hope includes hope for this life as well as the next. Uh, nevertheless, I felt an ouch, and maybe you did if you read it, because as Christians we are or should be experts in hope. The message of Easter is the message of hope. You see, you can be optimistic about keeping safe and well, about getting or keeping your job, or maintaining equilibrium, and after it's all over, starting a relationship or starting a family, making money or getting promotion, saving a pension, uh, living healthily to old age or being remembered for a time or leaving something worthwhile behind. You can cherish a hope for all sorts of things in this life. But I want to ask, is that enough? I, I became a Christian in May 1969. Uh, that may seem a very long time back for some of you. Uh, not so far back for some. But two months later, uh, I was watching TV at my very first Christian camp. Uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the Apollo 11 astronauts, the first men to walk on the moon. Now, just imagine halfway there, Armstrong turning to Aldrin and asking, where are we going? And Aldrin replying, I don't know. 
And imagine Aldrin turning back to Armstrong asking, well, where did we come from? Only to get the same reply, I don't know. It's unthinkable. But if you don't know either where you're coming from or where you're going, the only meaning to be found in the journey would be inside the spaceship itself. The idea would have been surreal of the journey of Apollo 11 in July 69. But, you know, it's very real of the journey through space which the whole world is travelling. The Earth itself is a spacecraft. Its travellers right now are a bit sick. And many millions of travellers in spacecraft Earth have no idea where they came from, no idea where they're going. And the point is that therefore they have to find meaning totally within the present and wholly within the spaceship Earth itself. But again I ask, is that adequate? The Easter hope is a bigger one than all the this-worldly meanings. It's a hope of life after death. It's a hope of eternal happiness. It's a hope of God's forgiveness of our sins. It's the hope of reunion forever with believers that we've lost. It's the hope of a new creation. It's the hope of the power of the Holy Spirit for life. That's mentioned in the last verse of our reading. It's the only hope in the end that really matters. It's the hope that the two disciples on the Emmaus Road had and temporarily lost. Charlie pointed us to it last week in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In the face of Jesus' death, they lost hope. But as we've continued the journey with the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection in this last chapter of Luke, uh, do you know, a number of things have become so much clearer to me. I suppose they're also core convictions that remain with me after 40 years of ordained ministry, despite all the uncertainties and the failures which I'm equally conscious of. Luke shares these convictions with us. First of all, there's no hope without an answer to death. That is, no lasting hope, real hope for life. Imagine if Luke's Gospel ended with chapter 23. Uh, look at it with me, the last verse. They saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid in it, and then they went home. That sums up the end of life for many people today. They saw the funeral. They saw the coffin being laid in the grave. And then they went home. Uh, we may know someone or have known of someone who has died in this pandemic. It's focused all our minds, hasn't it? But it has revealed our generation is no more at peace with the prospect of dying and bereavement than any before it. World literature is at one in its horror of death, how it terminates the contribution of every individual, guillotines our relationships and hemorrhages the meaning of our existence. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a theologian whose son died in a climbing accident. And he wrote this in his book, Lament for a Son. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Some people are gifted with words of wisdom. For such, one is profoundly grateful. There were many such for us. But not all are gifted in that way. Some blurted out strange, inept things 
that's okay too. Your words don't have to be wise. The heart that speaks is heard more than the words spoken. And if you can't think of anything at all to say, just say, I can't think of anything to say. But I want you to know that we're with you in your grief. Or even just embrace. But please don't say it's not really so bad. Because it is. Death is awful. Demonic. If you think that your task as comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief. But you place yourself off in the distance away from me. I know people do sometimes think things are more awful than they really are. Such people need to be corrected, eventually and gently. But no one thinks death is more awful than it is. It's those who think it's not so bad who need correcting. And without an answer in the face of this, there's no ultimate hope, only limited, narrow, temporary, partial hopes for this life. The Bible sees death as an enemy, not a friend. It's the ultimate enemy. God never says in the Bible, let there be death. It has no positive place in his purposes. It doesn't belong in his world. Death in the Bible is that which God assaults. Death is enemy. And so again, I, I'm convinced there is no real copper-bottomed, eternally rust-proof, corrosion-resistant hope in the end unless it has an answer in the face of death. So where is there an answer to death? Here's the second thing that's been born in on me in recent days. It's this. There's no better answer to death, none that I know of, than the resurrection of Jesus. Here it is in verse 36. Look at it uh, with me. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. In the 1400s, all the capitals of Europe were buzzing with speculation. Was there a way to the rich land of spices and perfume and silk around the southern tip of Africa? Was there a sea route to India? Many believed there was. Nobody knew for sure. All attempts at rounding the Cape had failed, so much so that the treacherous headland was called the Cape of Storms. Thousands were shipwrecked there. But in 1488, Bartholomew Diaz rounded the Cape, and that was, that was for the first time, and ten years later, Vasco da Gama was the first to reach India and return to Lisbon. It was renamed the Cape of Good Hope. Ever since, it was impossible to doubt that a way to the east exists round the bottom of Africa. Well, death was like that cape of storms, littered with wrecks. There was only speculation to go on about any afterlife. No one had gone through and come back to tell us. Until Jesus died and rose again. And so he's uniquely qualified to tell us. And the historical evidence is impressive. The disappearance of his body, which no one could produce. His, disappearance, his reappearances for 40 days to different groups of people 
in different times and places. The appearance of the early church, which turned the world around, and the experience of Christians down the ages, including billions of people today. And I've become convinced of that. Jesus is the only person in the whole of history for whom there is such a claim with such good evidence to back it up. And do you notice Luke? Now, Luke's a doctor. He goes out of his way to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus's body, not just his spirit or his aura or his memory. Anticipating our doubt that it may have been a ghostly vision, Luke tells us, look at verse 37, that's what they thought at first. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. No, Jesus said, look at my hands and feet. They still had the nail wounds in them. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, as you see I have. And then to their amazement, verse 41, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. And Dr. Luke records it all to convince us. And so there's no better answer to death, none that I know of, than the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the one and only answer. When my mother died a few years ago, that was another time it came to me with the same force. I was so upset at the time and in my doubt and just wobbling a bit, where was she? Would I see her again? Can Jesus be trusted? I opened my Bible at John chapter 6 and verse 66. Do you know this bit? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Oh, that's so sad, isn't it? And if there's one sadness I look back over these many years, it's those who did follow Jesus and then turned back and no longer followed him. If there's one thing I plead with us all to do, don't turn back. Keep following him. But then Jesus asked the twelve, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, who else is there to turn to? And frankly, it's either Jesus or nothing. Jesus successfully rounded the Cape and he returned. And so we know who now his resurrection has turned it into the Cape of Good Hope. He's opened for us a way to a new land. He's proved its existence. And because he's successfully navigated that cape, he's perfectly qualified to be our captain. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's hostility to death. The resurrection shows that death is not, as one undertaker's brochure put it, the final step in the master's plan to bring us safely home. It's not kind and gentle death, despite what the hymn says. It's that which God opposes. It is enemy, but it's now a defeated enemy. Jesus undid death.
Jesus is victorious. Which raises one further question. How do I experience the resurrection? And a third conviction I still feel quite sure of. I think I have more questions now than when I started out in ministry. In fact, more than when I started the Christian life. But this one for me is answered. There's no experience of the resurrection without an understanding of his death. It is for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the key words there in verse 47? Uh, when you look back over Luke's chapter on the resurrection, it's had three encounters, hasn't it? In the first, the women who went to the tomb encountered two men, presumably angels, who gently rebuked them. Verse 5, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised. If you'd understood the necessity of his death, you'd have belief in his resurrection. In the second encounter on the Emmaus Road, Jesus rebukes the two disciples. Uh, verse 25, how foolish you are. Uh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? This is Jesus, the Lord of life, returning from the grave. And his first words to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, you fools. How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Again, do you see the necessity of the cross? If you'd understood that I had to die, you'd have no problem believing that I'm alive again. And then in the third encounter with the eleven in Jerusalem, Jesus again rebukes them, uh, this time I think more gently. Verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. And verse 46, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Now, do you see three events, three times, three rebukes ticking off, three explanations of the necessity of his death? So that unexpectedly, the final chapter of Luke's gospel, the chapter on the resurrection, turns out to be an explanation not of his resurrection, but of his death, whose purpose, Jesus explains, is for forgiveness of sins. This is central. This is the priority. This is the core conviction. And so there's no belief in the resurrection without an understanding of his death for the forgiveness of sins. You've got to understand his crucifixion, then you'll understand his resurrection. You have to come to his death on the cross, then you can come to his life from the tomb. Know why he died, then you can know how to live. Understand his sacrifice, then you'll experience his victory. 
So, friends, these three, and, and I think I, I come to this point still with these core convictions. First, there's no hope without an answer to death. Unless you've have got that, you're just burying your head in the sand. There's no ultimate hope, capital H hope. And Easter has the answer. This is what we can offer those who grieve. We can refuse to downplay death because we affirm the, the should not be-ness of death and bereavement. We can face the full horror of it with others because we know that death is not just an enemy, but a defeated enemy. And second, there's no answer to death like the resurrection of Jesus. The defeat of death is uniquely, do you know, among all the philosophies and religions of the world, all the isms and all the ologies, uniquely grounded on the reliable foundation of the risen Christ. The knowledge of death's defeat is transformative of life. It doesn't take away the pain, but the pain, though terrible, can be temporary. And death, although a hiatus in our relationships, need not be the termination of them. The resurrection of Jesus sets the implacable and victorious hostility of God over against the enemy of death that otherwise makes a mockery of our relationships, our lives and our hopes. So there's no hope without an answer to death. There's no answer to death like the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing even comes close. And third, there's no personal resurrection until we come to the cross of Christ. The key to knowing Christ risen is through repentance and forgiveness of our sins. You make application to Christ crucified for you, then you will know Christ risen in you. If only those disciples had known their Bibles. The scriptures, that is our Bible, is given to us to both heart and mind. Did you notice the two openings in verse 32? Our hearts burning within us while he opened the scriptures to us. And verse 45, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. The Bible, like no other set of books, appeals to both minds and hearts. And he has to do it. He has to open our hearts and open our minds. We can't just decide to do it for ourselves. He has to do it for us. But he will if we ask him. But once it's open to our minds, we must study it carefully and thoughtfully. And once it's open to our hearts, so we must also be equally careful to pray over it and obey it. So let's pray now, shall we? Let's be quiet for a moment. And let's say in our own hearts, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, you provide us with the biggest answer to the greatest question of life, the ultimate question. And for those of us who've never 
come to face that. Or for others of us who have, but who from time to time, as I have done over my Christian life, we wobble and we doubt, we wonder. Will you reinforce in us this Easter time, this full conviction? Thank you that your resurrection is the proof, it's the answer. Help us to believe it and to experience it. And to experience first and foremost, and to keep not only believing it, but passing it on and declaring it to others. That the whole point of it was for the forgiveness of sins, the opening of eternal life, a future and a hope. And help us to trust you. Help us, every one of us, not to turn back, but to keep following you to the end of our lives. Give us, even today, even now, the full re-equipping, refilling of your Holy Spirit to have power for living at these times. And with the little struggles that we face, for some a minor inconvenience of this lockdown, for others of us much bigger questions and problems and struggles. Keep us in the firm conviction that we know where we're going. We know where the journey ends. We know that you have the last word. We know who wins. You won at the cross and resurrection, and you will win in the end. And keep us closely in touch with you, studying and uh, reading, opening our minds and our hearts to you day by day, and especially as we open our Bibles and open ourselves. So guard us, guide us, keep us, help us, for we have no help but thee. And for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen.